Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. All right, if you would, please open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back there. Feel free to stand up, grab one. That's our gift to you. We want you to take that home. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. And we are and have been specifically studying Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, This sermon by Jesus, uh, really it's Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 8, it is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever. Uh, We are in part of of Jesus' sermon here where the subject matter, it hits pretty close to home for many of us. We discussed anger several weeks ago, and now we're in the middle of talking about adultery and lust. Next week, we're going to be talking about divorce. It's not a coincidence here that Jesus puts all of these topics back to back to back within the Sermon on the Mount. Anger and sex. These two things are the two of the most powerful human emotions and experiences. Um, Both reach deep into the sinfulness of our hearts And if there is one central theme within Jesus' sermon here, it is that he is dealing with our hearts. He's not just dealing with our exterior behavior here. So Jesus is having us question our motives and our thinking and and our decision making. And last week we focused in on one verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. So we looked at this one verse, and we said that to understand the sinfulness of adultery, we first must understand the mystery of marriage. And to understand the mystery of marriage, we had to rewind. And that's what we did. We went back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So a couple key points from last Sunday. Marriage is not only a physical union, but it's also a spiritual union reality. We also said that sex is the exclusive activity that defines the marriage relationship. Now, we all know the consequences that come when someone steps outside the marriage and commits the sin of adultery. So we spent a lot of time, first of all, learning about the mystery of marriage. And then secondly, we listened to the, to the Heavenly Father's heart by reading Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we saw how God, as a, as a loving father, he pleads with us not to commit adultery. He begs us not to do that. And prayerfully, that's what we took away from last Sunday. That we learn that when God says, don't commit adultery, what he's saying is, don't hurt yourself. If you do this, you are going to hurt yourself. And I love you too much 
to see you go through that. And that's what Jesus means. Do not commit adultery. So today, we're going to finish this section of Jesus' sermon regarding adultery. He opens this conversation up really to a broader discussion today. As we move into uh, verse 28, we're going to be talking about lust. Uh, So today's sermon is is PG-13. So if if you have children in the room, uh, Amy's going to be in the the back there in the classroom, and she's going to give them a separate lesson, all right? So we're going to learn the lie of lust today. But we're also going to learn the beauty of of sexual purity. And then lastly, we're going to see the the forgiveness found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word, and we're going to dive in here. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said... Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, well, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And this is the word, the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Please be seated. Thank you. Let's take a look here at verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus uses a familiar phrase here as he begins teaching his disciples. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you or I tell you. So in using this phrase, Jesus was referencing the halakha. We've talked about that. The halakha means the walk. It refers to the oral traditions of the rabbis. So Jesus' first point here is foundational for us this morning. When Jesus says, but I tell you. We read that and we should, we should go, well, wait a second. Our, our, we should start asking some questions of the text, right? And our first question should be, well, wait a second. Who are you to have any authority over me? I mean, if, if Jesus is not God in the flesh, if Jesus is not God incarnate, if Jesus is not the Son of God and the Son of Man who came, to, who came to take away the sin of the world, why should we listen to him? I mean, who is he to tell me how to live or, or not live my life? I mean, wh- why don't we just get our advice from Oprah and Dr. Phil? How about Hugh Hefner? Why don't, why don't we just listen to these guys? Why does Jesus think that he can barge into the most private part of my life? Well, the reason that we as Christians, the reason that we listen and obey to Jesus is because we know who he is. We know that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, which means that he is also the lawgiver 
Jesus is the one who gave the law to Moses with the Ten Commandments. And now we see Jesus correctly teaching the spirit of the law within the Sermon on the Mount. So back to verse 28, he says, I tell you. The pronoun I there in Greek is ego. It's emphatic. It means that Jesus puts his own words above the rabbis and all of their oral traditions. So in other words, Jesus is teaching this commandment on adultery in the same spirit and with the same attitude in which it was given. Jesus continues here in verse 28. He says, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully. So just as Jesus forbids uh, the anger that leads to murder, Jesus forbids the lust that leads to adultery. Looks comes from the Greek word blepo. Blepo means to examine. It is to gaze. It is to see something, but you keep on seeing. It's not a casual glance. It is a constant stare with the purpose of lusting. This look is not accidental. This is a second look. It is planned. It's an intentional and repeated leer at someone. Now, I say all that, and I want you to understand, believe it or not, someone can look at a beautiful person and know that they are beautiful and not lust after them. However, this is uncommon for most men, including Christian men. We as Christian men, we need to unlearn our deeply ingrained fleshly response, our our habits, and we got to replace those things with godly habits. This is where our spiritual disciplines come into play. Uh, A discipline is a form of training. We have to train ourselves to do these things. So our spiritual disciplines of reading the word of God by the spirit of God, our spiritual discipline of praying for one another, our spiritual disciplines of, of serving the saints around you and serving your community and attending Bible studies. Spiritual disciplines of giving and fasting and confessing sin. All of these things, they spiritually form you and they conform you into a new person. We can't say it better than the Apostle Paul regarding spiritual formation. Romans 12 two. He says, do not be conformed to this age. Do not be conformed by what Hugh Hefner has to say. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Why, Paul? Why do you want us to do that? So that you may discern what is the good and the pleasing and the perfect will of Almighty God. See, being formed and being conformed, it's a painful process that lasts a lifetime. And for many of us, there's no better example of the spiritual disciplines to apply all of these things to our topic today of lust. So back to verse 28, Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, lustfully, the Greek is epithemal, and it's not only to look at someone, you're not just examining and gazing of them, now you're starting to crave for that person. It is a desire to have someone that you don't have, someone that is not yours, 
So this craving, this desiring, this longing, this yearning, it, it leads to another problem on, on God's top 10 list. God's top 10 list of how to ruin your life really fast. We start doing these things, we will certainly do that. Adultery comes in at number seven, coveting comes in at number 10. So lust is a form of coveting. Coveting is the gateway to many, many sins, including adultery. So when a person starts to look and to crave someone sexually, he's not breaking one command, but two, and possibly three. More on that in a moment. So let's define what we're talking about today. Let's define lust, epithemal. Lust is defined as experiencing pleasure without love. It's the moment that we, we separate someone's sexuality from their personhood. It's the moment we divorce who they are for our own benefit. Lust is the desire to possess and use someone for our own pleasure. Now, there are many stories in the Old Testament regarding the sin of lust, lots of them. One of the most famous stories is about King David. Let me uh, read this to you, 2 Samuel eleven two. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he strolled around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. And the person that he sent comes back and he says this, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So this man, he comes back and he sends a warning shot to King David. He says, don't do this, David. This is another man's wife. Verse four, David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. And then afterward, she returned home. So it's very clear here how David used this woman. David didn't heed the warning. He gave in to his lust, which ruined his life. If you know the rest of the story, King David's life was never the same after this, which meant the nation of Israel was also never the same. Brings us to our first key point. Our sexual sin is not a private matter. It is a public testimony that reveals the condition of our heart. Our sexual sin is not a private matter. It is a public testimony that reveals the condition of our heart. God's word goes on to say, your sin will find you out. So David not only stared and gazed and gawked at this woman, but he coveted another man's bride, and then he stole her from her husband. Stealing, that's also on God's top 10 list of how to quickly ruin your life. It comes in at number eight. I remember teaching at a men's conference one year. This was four or five years ago. And I'm teaching on sexual purity. Um, and he said something like this, you know, he said, you know, if these women would just stop wearing yoga pants, I would be okay. 
whole room started laughing. This is a men's conference. The whole room thought it was really funny. I waited for everybody to settle down, and I said, no. Yoga pants are not your problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. His response to his own, listen to this now. His response to his own lust was to blame women. Now that should sound pretty familiar, right? Adam blamed Eve. And we as men have been blaming Eve ever since. (laughs) Key point number two. The cause of lust is not beautiful people, but a sinful response to beautiful people. The cause of lust in our hearts is not beautiful people. It's, it's our sinful response to them. See, if we're going to blame our lust on beautiful women, then ultimately we're blaming God because he's the creator, he's the designer, he's the artist. And once again, this, this blaming God should sound familiar. Adam not only blamed the woman, he blamed God. And here we are doing the same thing that Adam did. Our lustful looks reveal the condition of our lustful hearts. See, David's problem was not that he saw Bathsheba bathing. His problem was taking a second look. And then when he took the second look, it turned into a stare. And when, it, when he started to stare, it did something to him. It inflamed his lustful heart. And then he had to do something about that lustful heart. His lustful heart demanded a sinful response. He could have looked away. I mean, isn't this a man after God's own heart? And if David, a man after God's own heart, if if he is capable of lust, if he is capable of adultery, and if you know the rest of the story, if he's capable of murder, my goodness, imagine what we're capable of. Back to verse 28. Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Man, if I had a nickel for every time I heard this excuse, well, you know, I've I've already lusted. I might as well do the deed. I might as well do it because Jesus says right here that I've already committed adultery with her in my heart. All right. Jesus is not saying that lustful desires are identical to lustful deeds. See, the desire and the deed are not physically identical, but spiritually they are equivalent because sin is sin. But see, there's also a progression to sexual sin. So it's common sense for us to realize that lusting in our hearts is one thing because the consequences of that sin are are different than the sin of committing the act. Committing the physical act brings a whole new level of pain suffering, and self-inflicted consequences. Now, in verse 28, there is a bit of a riddle here that I wanted to show you in the Greek. If you have the ESV, if you have the English Standard Version, you're going to see it in your translation. Let me show that to you on the screen here. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery 
with her in his heart. So from this perspective, Jesus is opposing the man who looks at a woman and then he starts to wonder like, oh, how can, how can he cause her to desire him? It's a game of seduction, right? The man is leering at her, hoping to stir up some lustful thoughts in her. This is called sin. Verse 29, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. All right, everybody pause and take a deep breath. We got to take a break here. We got to see what Jesus is saying, right? Otherwise, there's going to be some unneeded, drastic, lifelong consequences that follow. We got to check. We got to make sure that our biblical hermeneutics are correct at this moment. We must make sure that our interpretation of verse 29 is correct. Are we to take Jesus' statement literally? And if we are, why aren't most men walking around looking like pirates? <laughs> Just asking. This is a crucial question for us. We got to see what God's word has to say about what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about self-inflicted physical mutilation. Because if we don't stop and ask and, and pause right now, we're going, to in, in, we're going to interpret this passage incorrectly like one of our church fathers. His name was Origen. Origen of, of Alexandria. He lived in the second century. Origen was a great church father. He was wonderful, but <laughs> he read this verse and he, he was so convicted that he castrated himself. Exactly. Was that the right thing for Origen to do? I mean, Origen didn't even follow the instructions correctly here. Genesis 127 says that human beings are made in the image of God. And if we're created in God's image, dear friends, we don't have the right to mutilate his creation. There are several examples of people gashing themselves in scripture. That's one of the terms here for self-mutilate, uh, self-mutilate, yeah, physical mutilation. Um, in the Old Testament, self-mutilation, it was a common practice among false religions. You don't see the Jews doing this. Remember the dramatic showdown between the prophet Elijah and the priest of Baal? 1 Kings chapter 18. Yeah, it didn't work out so well for those pagan priests, did it? So scripture condemns self-mutilation. And then looking back at church history as well, if you know your church history, you look at the Council of Nicaea, forbids it. So is Jesus, what's Jesus doing? Is he contradicting the Old Testament law? No, dear friends, Jesus is being hyperbolic. Jesus is using hyperbole um, with this verse and with the next one as well. 
We use hyperbole all the time in our conversations, right? We're carrying something really heavy and we say, oh man, this thing weighs a ton. Song comes on the radio. I've heard this song a gazillion times, right? That's hyperbole. And Jesus is doing the same thing to get our attention. But once again, how do we know that? How do we know with 100% certainty that Jesus is using hyperbole? Let me ask you a couple questions here. Number one, if someone gouges out their right eye, can they still lust with their left? If someone gouges out both of their eyes, can they still sin in their mind? Hmm. So what's that tell us? Mutilation, it doesn't cleanse the heart, does it? Our our imagination is a gift from Almighty God. And what we feed our mind is of eternal importance. What you watch on TV, what you read, what you listen to, all of that's going to have this perpetual impact on how you view life and then how you view God. So dear friends, Jesus is absolutely positively and figuratively speaking here in this verse. So in other words, we could say this. You've got to take drastic action in getting rid of whatever tempts you to sin. You've got to get radical. You've got to quit playing around with lust like it's some cute little harmless puppy. Have you ever watched the, the movie The Little Shop of Horrors? Hmm, back in high school, my friend took me to a midnight matinee. That was my first exposure to the little shop of horrors. If you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, it's only been out for like 30 years. This person has this plant, he waters and feeds the plant, and the the little plant grows up and eats him. It's quite the ordeal. Now, I'm not recommending that you watch the movie, but it's a really good example of how lust works in our life. So if we wanted to to modernize this verse, we could say something like this. If your right eye causes you to sin, well, throw away your TV. If your right eye causes you to sin, destroy your computer. If your right eye causes you to sin, well, get a flip phone. They still make them. (laughs) If your right eye causes you to sin, get off social media. So in other words, if you don't have the self-control to have all of these luxuries in life, it is time, what Jesus is saying, it is time to get radical. You need to do something right now before lust eats you. Now, why does Jesus say right eye? In the Jewish culture, the right eye, the right hand, they represent a person's best abilities. So the right eye, it represented someone's best vision. His right hand, um, someone's best skill set. So if you're right-handed, think about how, ma- how much more you, lose, you use your, your right hand compared to your left. Verses 29 and 30, it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
So don't miss this. This is pretty incredible. Jesus repeats himself in verses 29 and 30. What's his point here? His point is that unrestrained, unconfessed, unrepented lust will send you to a very real place called hell. Dear friends, this is, this is not our only life that we're living right now. God has created you for eternity. Each one of us, whether you're a believer this morning or you're an unbeliever this morning. Two places, heaven or hell. So God, in verses 29 and 30, he says, you know what? I'm really, really serious about this sin called lust. The Apostle Paul goes into greater detail here in 1 Corinthians 6, verse, uh, verse 9. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. He goes, don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males. So Paul is defining who the sexually immoral people are. And then he says, no thieves, he goes, the list continues, greedy people, drunks, verbally abusive people. You got a hot temper? Are you a verbally abusive peop a person? Are you a, sw a swindler? None of those kinds of people are going to inherit God's kingdom. And I love verse 11. Some of you used to be like this. But, so good. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Guys, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. None of these sexual sins that we've engaged in is outside of His grace without repentance. We have to evaluate our lives on this matter, guys. We, we got to choose, right? Are we going to choose our, our own soul, our own way? Or is it that silly little computer? Are we going to choose our sanctity or pornography? We can't have both. So when it comes to sex and sexuality and gender, we are so conditioned and demonically jaded. We really are. I mean, it's nearly impossible to hear this kind of truth as a 21st century American. And even when we hear it for the first time, many of us are going, hmm, I don't know about any of this. I'm reminded of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 6.15. The Lord is speaking through the prophet. And he asked, were they ashamed when they... When they acted so detestably, they weren't. They, they weren't at all ashamed. They, they can no longer, interesting, they no longer can feel humiliation. So in other words, we are numb to God's truth. We are in a sexual stupor. America's no longer can blush about sexual sin. We, we've been through this living through really the third sexual revolution in the past hundred years. The first sexual revolution was with the, the roaring 20s, the 1920s. The second was in the 1960s, and we're living through the third today. 
Each one of a, each one of those sexual revolutions, it, it, it grew with its level of depravity. Because adultery doesn't just happen. We, we've all been conditioned for it. But at the same time, we're the only ones who can take responsibility as well. So how do we take responsibility? A couple of thoughts from the word of God here. Job 31.1. Job says, you know what? I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look? How can I examine? How can I gaze? How can I leer at a young woman? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says, I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So if we do not consciously control what is around us, where we go, what we do, what we watch, what we read, the company that we keep, all the conversations that we have, all of those things will begin to control us. Leads us to key point number three. Lust is a radical problem that requires a radical solution. That's the main point of this text. So dear friends, if you're living a secret life, if you've got secret email addresses, P.O. boxes, if you're, surfing the, if you're surfing the internet and you've got all those privacy filters on, if you're flirting with people on social media, text uh, using text messages in that way, please hear Jesus say, do not commit adultery. In other words, don't hurt yourself. Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus says this. He goes on to say, you know, there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered. Nothing hidden that won't be made known. What's that mean? It means repent. Repent while you still have time. Because really, you've got two choices when it comes to addressing lust. You've got humility and humiliation. And the Lord is begging you to choose humility. Personally, I've been through the humiliation route on this road, and you do not want to travel that one. You know, to give us God's full perspective on lust, I think it's really crucial that we look at sexual sin from a theological standpoint. Theology is uh, the study of the nature of God. So to study God's nature through the lens of sexual purity, um, I, I want to define some ter terminology first. Make sure we're all on the same page with some of these terms that we hear all the time. So let's define love. Love is a, it's a loyalty, it is a fidelity that propels us to action for the good of others. And here's the key, no matter the cost to me. Love is about sacrifice. Lust, once again, experiencing pleasure without love. We are divorcing, we are separating someone's sexuality from their personhood, from who they are, from their being. God has purposed us to have sex with a person, our spouse, and not just a body. 
Let's define sexual sin. I've been, I've been talking about that. This is a big definition, so stay with me here. Sexual sin, any sexual thoughts, fantasies, or relations with someone or something outside the marriage covenant between one biological man and one biological woman. Now let's define the actual behavior. So we got some definitions there. Let's look at the behavior from a spiritual perspective. On your screen, I'm going to list the most common types of sexual sin, and then we're going to look at those sins from a biblical perspective. All right? So we've been talking about adultery for the past two weeks. Adultery, sexual intercourse between a married person and someone who is not their spouse. What's the biblical view of adultery? Biblical view is that adultery miscommunicates that Christ will cheat on the church and be intimate with another. That's why we, that's why we had to slow down and we had to find the mystery of marriage last week. If, if you didn't see that sermon, it's on the website. But there is a beauty to marriage that we can't see. Divorce. Defined as the legal dismissal of a marriage. The biblical view of divorce is that it miscommunicates that Christ and the church would be split apart after a certain period of time. Fornication. We don't use this, this word very often in our own vocabulary. It's basically when two people are sexing it up, right? They're hooking up. Sexual intercourse between two unmarried people. What's the biblical view of that? What's, what's, who's getting hurt? The biblical view is this. Fornication miscommunicates that Christ and the church, they experience intimacy without commitment. There's no commitment there. Homosexuality. Talking about sodomy and, and lesbianism. Engaging in sexual behavior with someone of the same sex. What's God's view on this from a theological perspective? Homosexuality miscommunicates that the proper coupling that God intended was not Christ and the church, a man and a woman, but two Christ, a man and a man, and two churches, a woman and a woman. Polygamy. The practice of having more than one spouse at the same time. The biblical view is that it miscommunicates that Christ has many churches rather than one true church. Now, I'm not talking about denominations there. One true church. Pornography. The emotional, spiritual, and physical abuse of people. Don't miss that. The abuse of people performing profane acts of sexuality for the arousal of a viewer or audience. Porn divorces the dignity of the person made in the image of God, once again, from who they are, from their sexuality. What's the biblical view of this? Pornography miscommunicates that Jesus Christ, right? He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. But last week we learned that he's also the groom of grooms. He is the perfect man. He's the perfect groom. 
Pornography miscommunicates that Jesus Christ would derive pleasure as the groom of grooms from viewing such profane acts. Prostitution, the practice or occupation of someone that engages in sexual activity for payment. What's the biblical view here? Prostitution miscommunicates that Christ and the church that were strangers who experience a brief form of sexual union that's simply based on a financial transaction. Last one, rape. It's a crime. The crime of forcing another person to have sexual intercourse against their will. The biblical view of rape is that it miscommunicates that Christ would force himself on an unwilling church. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but rather it shows how all of these behaviors, right, they stray from God's original design. God has a purpose. He has a design for sex, sexuality, gender, and marriage. Now, for all of us who have strayed from God's design in this area, once again, I want to remind you, God's grace is bigger than your sin. You are never outside the grace of God with repentance. Father in heaven, you are so good to us to teach us the lie of lust. You're so good to us to teach us about the mystery of of marriage and and the, the beauty of sexual purity. This part in your sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is a heavy topic. But Lord, we have to talk about these things. We are so confused. So Lord, thank you for teaching us from your word. And I pray that as we leave here today, that we continue to seek your face in this such an important area of sex and sexuality and gender. Lord, we we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you uh, that you, Lord Jesus, are also the groom of grooms and that you're coming back soon. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.